Welcome to Politically Pissed, the podcast that wants to ask Clemson's football team, are you ba da 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 loving it? Yeah, guns close doors to the system. Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them. We're solid and we don't need to kick them. This is no Southeast and Westerns. Can they keep up on that? Can they be doing it like that? Welcome to Politically Pissed. My name is Saeed Charbini, and I'm here with my co-host Katya. Hey. And our other co-host, Eris, couldn't be with us today. He's uh, gallivanting around Europe. So, uh, And then we're joined also today by Representative Meg Froelich. Go ahead and say hi. Hello. Hey, Meg. All right, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. We wanted to talk to you a little bit about your career and politics here and stuff like that. Can you start off by like telling us where you're from and like all that kind of stuff? <laughs> Biographics. Yeah. Um, I grew up overseas. And, where at? Um, I lived in Japan, Australia, and Malaysia. Were you a child of the military? I was not. Oh, okay. Corporate kid. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've heard that story before, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so moved around a lot, and then went to boarding school in Virginia, and then high school, and then college at in Pennsylvania at Bryn Mawr, and then went to teach in New York City for a year, and then went to grad school in history at Michigan which is only interesting in that I became friends with Laura Hepner, who eventually, many, many years later, was my co-producer on a historical documentary here in Colorado. What, so we can talk about that later. That? Uh, we can talk about it now <laughs> or real quick. We'll go yeah. in chronological yeah. order. I finished up my exams for my PhD and then lit out to New York City and decided I wanted to work in television like every young woman in America, I think, <laughs> but lucked into a job as a researcher on a historical documentary, and that kind of began a really fun career in historical documentaries. So I made episodes of biography and American Masters and American Experience. Wow. Then married and moved to San Francisco, and the documentary film world in San Francisco was mostly social justice oriented, which I love, love, love as a documentary film genre, but I didn't really have the chops or the experience in that and ended up doing content generation in Silicon Valley and then moved this is sort of a theme, <laughs> moved to Singapore okay. where I taught history and did the website for the National Archives, which was both terrific and fun. We were transferred to London and ended up, my husband ended up taking a job in Denver, Colorado instead. So we told the movers different <laughs> ocean and um, came back home. So that was in 1999. So I've been here on and off since 1999. At that, by that time, Laura had moved from Michigan to Colorado, and she was in on the ground floor of a leadership training program for progressives called Colorado Institute for Leadership Training, which no longer exists, unfortunately, but had a great run training a lot of people who felt it was an important tool in the toolkit, and it really was because it trained on policy, nine counties, um, nine issues across a year-long span. So ended up taking that program and then running that program. Then a couple years after that, Laura and I were having one of our many get-togethers. And at the time, she was working at the Women's Caucus at the legislature, which is bicameral and bipartisan. And she received a grant to write biographies of early women legislators. 
And we started to unearth this incredible history in Colorado of all the firsts. The fact that Colorado was the first place to elect any women in, in any parliamentary body in the world, as far as we can tell, in 1894. So well ahead of the nation. So I said to her, there's a film here. I really want to make this into a film. And she said, I really want to make this into a film. And I said, don't worry, I used to make like three of these a year, forgetting that that was in a building of a hundred and plus other people <laughs> who were helping you in the effort. Yeah, lost uh, but yeah. four <laughs> years later, we finished it in Laura's basement on a laptop. So that's a testament also to technology and the advances that have been made in that. So that film was called Strong Sisters. Wonderful journey that I think actually helped put me where I am. Not that the legislature is um, glamorous or profitable or any of those things, but it's an amazing opportunity, obviously, to affect what I hope will be progressive change. But anyway, that film, we interviewed 70 elected past and present women and also did four years worth of research on what difference it makes to have women in a legislative body. And of course, we came to the conclusion it makes all the difference in the world and it's part of the reason (laughs) why Colorado has this pretty good history of bipartisan cooperation progressive meaning forward thinking don't we have one of the largest don't we have one of the largest number of women uh, so we have led the nation and that's one of the other pieces so we were the first place to give women the vote by popular referendum so Wyoming beat us Um, which we can talk about as well. But that was as part of their um, application for statehood. So we we like to think popular referendum is better because it means the men went to vote and voted to give women suffrage. So that's cool. So the film tells that story a little bit. But that was one of our first and then electing the three women. And then we led the nation on all kinds of sort of progressive women-friendly, family-friendly legislation on child labor and there was a great collaboration between the populist party at the time and women and then fast forward starting in the 90s we've led the nation in percentage of women in the legislature so we've been in the top 10 since the 90s and at sometimes in first place which we were when we made the film and then we dropped and now we're back to tying with Nevada. That is an awesome story, and I love that you're talking about women in politics here. I've heard that you're involved with Emerge or something like that. Uh, were you? I was. Uh, I was on. I've been recruiting and training women, formally and informally, uh, to run for office, pretty much for a couple decades. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because I do think it makes a difference, and I think our legislature should look like our state. So that Absolutely. means women. It means people of color. It means people of income diversity different backgrounds it means glbtq folks all of those things are just part of what's actually making the the house this year for me such a thrill (laughs) and so energizing is i look around the room and i just see a real representation of colorado and we're at 50 in the house where the action is and where all the good things are um we have actually a majority female chamber for the first time in colorado's history we're at 47, possibly soon to be 48, or 48, possibly soon to be 49. I have to check the numbers. Percentage of legislature. Either one is a all-time high for Colorado. Third consecutive and fourth female speaker in the House. I, yeah, I think it's... 
I think it's safe to say thank you for a lot of that work. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's kind of how I ended up in the pickle or the privilege, uh, either one that I'm in now. In 2015, I was looking for a woman to run for what was going to be Daniel Kagan's Mm -hmm. seat. He was going to run for the Senate. I was approaching activist women in the House District and trying to get them to run for consider running for the house seat and they sort of turned the tables on me and said enough of telling us what to do (laughs) it's time for you to look in the mirror and I really thought I can't go around Colorado encouraging young women to run for office and then when the time comes sort of take yet another pass as often happens you know family things have to kind of fall into place and they did which was nice and so I ran in 2015 in a primary for this seat that I now occupy well and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about next was uh the HD3 seat races both uh the 2016 one where you ran against uh Jeff Bridges and you actually won the caucus which means that your name came first in the ballot and everything right right but then Jeff ended up winning the primary he crushed it yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) uh and then i mean it was pretty contentious but he still won the general election too to hold the seat and and uh he held it for two years and then now that daniel kagan has decided decided to resign he was picked for the vacancy committee in order to fill daniel kagan's seat correct how do you feel about like daniel kagan's reasons for leaving and stuff like that so that was something that the press asked at the vacancy committee as well and we were lucky enough to hear from senator kagan um at the vacancy election for senate 26 while the votes were being counted he addressed the body and he said forthright and right up the top the this whole sort of quasi-bathroom scandal had absolutely nothing to do with his decision. And of course, immediately afterwards, the reporter asked me, do you believe him? And so I have no reason not to. But also, I had had a series of conversations with Senator Kagan about his reasons, and he assured me that it was both a desire to have another chapter, and I'm sure his wife, Faye, after 10 years of his service, and he's one of those people that gives a hundred and... I mean, it he sounds does. cliche, but he really gives 110%. He's been, a, to me, he's been an amazing legislator. And so he looked in his heart and he was, he just said it was just getting harder to read through every single word of every bill. It was getting harder to get excited about going in and doing the work. And he felt like the residents of, of Senate 26 deserve somebody who was going to give it their all. I believe that is speaks from his heart, and I wish him, I think he deserves a tremendous next chapter. It's, we, we joked about it. I said, it's not a second chapter, and I think we figured out it's like a fifth chapter for him. Um, <laughs> or but, more. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, it's a part-time legislature. It's not meant to be this be-all and end-all in people's lives. It's for a lot of people. It's a way that they have, give service to their community and give back, and I think he was definitely one of those people. And just tremendously intelligent and dedicated, yeah. great guy. I also understand why it's much more exciting to write an article that says embroiled in scandal, right. Senator resigns, you know, and I um, chastised the reporter a little bit. And he said, well, he was embroiled in a scandal. And I said, no, embroiled is a pretty strong verb. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I, to me, it was a nothing burger yeah. invented well, that's kind of the issue I've had with it the whole time is it seems like that's not really like a great reason to be stepping down. But what you said to me makes total sense now if he's not able to really put in the time dedication, if he's like, like you said, getting tired of reading every word and every bill that, you know, if he feels that way, then it's great that he did step down. Right. And I mean, he's got a really energetic, smart person who's going to 
work really, really hard on behalf of Step the right Senate in and District. Pick it up. And, and totally ready to hit the ground running, right? Yeah. Another cliche, but also accurate. <laughs> I mean, the only asterisk that I would put in there is that this, and I call it a non-scandal or nothing burger <laughs> event, I think it does color the way you feel about serving because it is indicative of the partisan sort of not great stuff that goes on and yeah. it would probably make you tireder or you know yeah. sadder or just just um, over it easier over it yeah. more quickly yeah no, i totally agree with that well and then let's talk about so jeff bridges filled his seat with the vacancy committee and then you went and ran for the vacancy committee for his seat can you maybe tell us a little bit about vacancy committees like how they right. work so it's very interesting yeah and there's so many people in the legislature who've gotten in on a vacancy including the speaker which i just recently learned when there's a u.s senate vacancy like there was with senator salazar taking a cabinet position then it's a gubernatorial appointment um we just had one in arizona where the person who lost the race got right. the Senate seat, <laughs> yeah. right? So at that high level, their appointments, which you can argue also you is somewhat less fair. Wasn't there um, a, a governor from Illinois that went to jail over that for Obama's oh, seat? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Bogoyevich, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> right. I he mean, was trying to sell, sell it, it yeah. though. Right, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can't do that. Yeah. But I mean, if you remember the controversy when Michael Bennett was appointed, yes, um, I do you know, remember people that. feeling like, it wasn't the will of the people. Mm-hmm. So our Senate, our, then the lower down folks or the, uh, the House and the Senate and state level people, state level people, even county level people are appointed out of or elected, actually. We, we often use the term appointed, but we prefer the term, those of us who've gotten in this way, prefer the term elected out of a vacancy committee. Well, you're still technically elected in there, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, in the Democratic Party, at least since my, I've been involved in Colorado, the vacancy committee is comprised of the precinct committee people in that district. Okay. So it is a representation of the whole district geographically, and it's two people per precinct, theoretically, if they're okay. all filled. But running for those seats is like Iowa caucus. I mean, it's really kitchen table politics. So Mm -hmm. there are only, in my case, there are only 65 votes. So I made my case individually to to each each one. one. (laughs) And if they want you at their kitchen table, you go to their kitchen table. If they don't... If they tell you to leave them alone after the first phone call, you leave them alone. Because we were, we were wondering. We didn't know if it was like party officials necessarily got in it, on that at all. It, and then in addition to the precinct committee people, the uh, the chair, vice chair, the, the elected, again, um, officers in that district, plus the yeah. county party chair and vice chair are also eligible to vote. But that's only okay. six people, and usually they're PCPs precinct committee people as yeah. well so it's only adds a couple handful of people and then senator kagan was an elector okay. jeff bridges was an elector elector so okay. there are some people like that but it's not like every dog catcher elected official well, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's how we do it on our side now senator bridges was elected by 160 something people that's what i heard um and i know people were saying well house district three gets so much representation now they have but of course senator kagan came from house district three <laughs> it's kind of how districts work house districts are inside of they senate overlap, districts if yeah. you come from the house district with the biggest amount of geography in a senate district you stand a good chance of doing well in the senate race whether it be a primary or a vacancy committee or a general 
for a house district, if you can represent a fair amount of the population on your city council or school board, then you have a pretty good chance of winning that house district vacancy. And so that's kind of one of the reasons why we build the bench is to get people with experience so that they're teed up when this mm -hmm. moment comes because they come a lot of times by surprise. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so be ready. Um, know, yeah. So that's that's what I also counsel young women running for office. I prefer to sort of mentor and get young women in office. Women of color would is my favorite. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That sounds well. Really, I mean, I guess I wonder like really what's, lame, but what's the sort of breakdown of diversity in your neighborhood here in the area? We have um, we have this. Some people call it schizophrenic house district. So we have that Sheridan uh, and Englewood. Sheridan is the fourth poorest city in America. In America, uh, it has tremendous challenges. <laughs> I didn't yeah, know that. It has, yeah. it's amazing. We have a little bit of Littleton, and then we have Cherry Hills and Greenwood Village, so the most affluent zip codes in Colorado. As Democrats, there are issues that unite us. I mean, we are all in, in awareness of climate change being real, um, wanting sustainability and uh, issues on the environment. We all want an expansion of civil rights um, and those sorts of issues. So yeah. House District 3 has four school districts, Littleton, Sheridan, Englewood, and Cherry Creek. So, again, huge variety. Wow. <laughs> so does that sort of span, like, the worst to the best? Um, not really. Yeah. I mean, the misconception about Cherry Creek is that it's universally That's what I keep prep school-like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, Cherry Creek has um, high percentages of ESL students. It has low-income students. It has um, – and it, we're all suffering from the – Mm -hmm. lack of funding for oh, public yeah. schools so cherry creek scrambling for dollars just like we all are they just maybe have um ptos and and booster clubs and things that that chip in but we're in a really slippery slope in colorado and i know at my kids elementary schools mine attended two different ones in littleton public schools one of which was bumping up against 80 percent federal lunch students and higher than that English language learners. And then they went to another elementary school when we moved houses um, that was much more affluent, drawing from a much more affluent population. And that PTO agreed to pay teacher salaries to wow. two full-time teachers. I just have a fundamental problem with that. Yeah. First of yeah. all, that funding isn't consistent, right? So mm -hmm. we had an economic downturn the parents might not be donations yeah. Yeah, go giving away. those yeah. donations. Yeah. And then what happens to the two full-time staff? I mean, that's just crazy. The, these are the challenges that are district-wide, and then they just the blow is a little bit softer sometimes, but not you can't count on it. Yeah. And um, all of our communities, from Sheridan to Littleton to Cherry Creek, support over and over again, support our public schools through mill levies and bonds. But we're bumping up against our mill levy ceiling, mm -hmm. as are many districts in Colorado. So we go over and over again to the community and ask them to support their public schools, and they pony up. Uh, and well, I guess that goes to, like, Tabor stuff where you have to ask for right. tax increases and who wants to increase their own taxes that often. Although I think... That is the most popular aspect of Tabor is asking, you have to ask for a tax increase. But I think the appetite and the education around Tabor is creating an appetite for chipping away at some of those um, 
some of the worst effects of Tabor. Mm-hmm. And I, what's exciting is that I think this legislature is going to really try and tackle it. Well, I think you're taking me right into the next part of our <laughs> yeah. talking points here, which is going to go towards uh, your policies and bills in the House and stuff like that. We've been clamoring the last few shows mm-hmm. about how you know we have Democrats in the governorship and the House, the Senate, everything like that, pretty much Democrats throughout. So what's the likelihood that Tabor is going to be finally taken away? I don't think we will ever see the end of Tabor. No? No. But, Not without um, like a like a vote by the people or something uh, like that? Or? I think that we will continue to see provisions going to the ballot for sort of, you could call it chipping away at Tabor. Mm-hmm. Um, you might see adjustment to the ratchet effect. If we could even just get rid of the ratchet effect, mm-hmm. which is the fact that once the economy declines, that then sets a new a new really like low basement standard. for yeah. for what what revenue can be kept by the general assembly okay. and that's so it ratchets down thus the name ratchet effect and if we could just even do some mathematics on lessening the ratchet effect so that we can basically our state is growing our economy is thriving and we're unable to really use those tax revenues from that thriving economy to actually that's always been my biggest complaint yeah yeah Yeah. i mean we can't fund our roads we can't fund our bridges the challenge is that it's supposed to be representative government and Mm -hmm. so if you're really going line item by line item of a budget and then appealing to the people to ask for the money to fulfill those budget requests which is what you're essentially doing when you're going with a transportation initiative or an education initiative then you never fund fully fund the things that are considered peripheral and some of those are so important to the welfare of Mm -hmm. our community as a whole so nobody wants to drive over a pothole but we need to have serious conversations about mental health about helping the homeless about folks that really have no voice and there's no lobby down there advocating for a referred measure although hey denver so well, maybe I mean, Denver sets the tone. There was like one or two politicians that were down there doing something. Like Joe Salazar, I know, did a lot right. to try to help the homeless population and right. stuff like that. So, he's I mean, gone, there's a, yeah, he's gone now. So, I mean, right. the slight voices that were even there, I mean, they come and go. Well, so. we, I mean, I think we as legislators, a lot of us would like to tackle those issues. But again, it's really the lobbyists and the money. I mean, look at 112. Yeah. So $50 million spent to defeat it versus $1 million. There were billboards up months after right, that. And right, yeah, just and paid for so, it. And um, you know, we could have a whole nother podcast on money and politics, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> or five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We will see, I think, amelioration of the effects of, of some of the worst effects of Tabor. I think that we have newcomers, obviously daily, weekly, to our state who didn't vote for Tabor who aren't counting on that I mean, I, I re- mean, refund. I didn't vote for Tabor. I was no. too young. Well, yeah. yeah. Or, but, we are, I mean, an aging population. I mean, not an aging population, a population that is a- aging into voting that didn't yeah. vote for Tabor. Um, well, yeah. I, I meet a lot of people that come to the state, and they have no idea what Tabor even is or right. exists right. or anything and like so that. And so each time we put a measure on the ballot, like we did this last election, even when it's defeated, first of all, I got a million more votes than any education measure. The, I'm speaking about the education measure. Got a million more votes than all of the other times we've tried. So we're getting there. Yeah. And that was a million 
more people who are educated about what Tabor means and mm-hmm. who probably likely didn't vote for it. But I think <laughs> um, the idea that you get to you have to take tax increases to the people is just too difficult to overcome and yeah. I'm, I'm not sure you can well in the legislature well in the legislature you guys can put forward uh, amendments for people to vote on right right and so that's one of the things that i'm hoping that this session is more proactive in that way i'd like to see more referred measures i think mm-hmm. that's a better way to go about it anyway than tasking education advocates to go out and get signatures and they did mm-hmm. and you know, obviously the setbacks people were able to get their signatures, but Amendment 71, I guess, that passed a couple, two cycles ago, made it more difficult to get a measure on the ballot. Yep. But I had heard that there was a Colorado Supreme Court case that overturned the requirement for the number from each district oh, or section. Right. It still required, I think, getting a certain number of signatures or something like that, but it made it less restrictive in that sense because they said it was too restrictive because certain areas that had less people would have more of a say than areas with more people. Right. Right. So that was the issue with that. Yes, and I've, I've worked on campaigns that try and collect signatures, and when you have to do them on <laughs> CD4, and it, yeah. you know. You're just driving all over the place. <laughs> yeah. <and yeah. laughs> you could have Democratic <laughs> voters separated by 25 miles. You know? Well, And I think the most interesting part about that one that you're talking about, the restrictive one, is uh, they didn't even meet their own qualifications to get it passed. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they passed under the old rules. Yeah. They couldn't even meet their new rules. Right. Like, but yeah. I mean, I... It's interesting because I'm not in love with popular referendum. In a perfect world, you elect people to represent you. They represent you properly, and if you don't like the way they represent you, you vote them out. Precisely. Uh, (laughs) Rather than collecting signatures outside of King Supers Mm -hmm. and trying to craft Unfortunately, that doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we say it giveth and it taketh away, right? Right. So it gave women the right to vote. It legalized marijuana. It gave us... Tabor, it gave us prop eight. Like good so. with the bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, at least there is the option for the legislature to put something forward to the people where the signatures don't have to be gathered for Correct. it. Correct. So. And that's why I think it's a better idea to have referred measures. Yeah. Um, and that really should be what, if the le- if the legislature identifies a problem, which the governor has in his, yeah. in his agenda and the speaker has in her agenda and the Senate Majority Leader has in uh, Senate President has in his agenda, then yeah, we we should refer some measures. I'd like to see it, and the people <laughs> are still voting. Oh, absolutely, they still get to vote on it in the end, and it's their decision. Then, yeah, yeah. What are your personal priorities for this session? Well, so I'm in a kind of funny position in that I'm sworn in on January 11th, and most. Bill's topics um, were due Friday before that. <laughs> so it's um, kind of gave me a lame session? Um, and, I mean, we had 350 submitted or something like that. So the good news is there's an ener- energetic whole group of people that are putting forward almost everything that I've been fighting for for two decades is showing yeah. up, which is yeah. absolutely thrilling. I don't need to have my name on a bill to be excited about paid family leave you or can all still day jump kindergarten. Yeah. Uh, affordable housing. We're going to do great things on sustainable energy, uh, sustainability, renewable energy. One of the most exciting, I think, wins of 2018 was Tom Sullivan in House District 37. Oh, yeah. So the huge. first Democrat yeah. to represent House District 37. And most of your listeners probably know or may not know that he lost a son in the Aurora Theater shooting. Mm-hmm. And he's been this, this tremendous gun safety advocate. He's running 
two or three uh, bills that are near and dear to my heart that I would have loved to have taken on as well. And he just has the most wonderful way about him. It's, you know, dare someone who's lost a child in an incident like that to tell him that this stuff doesn't make a difference and that we can't be a safer community. No, I agree. And I mean, just if you if you know Tom at all, you know how sweet of a person he is in general. And his wife. Yeah. I mean, they're just amazing. She drives the school bus not only for Cherry Creek Schools, but for the disability students and disabled Mm -hmm. students in Cherry Creek Schools. So they are just such good, wonderful people. And he has a uh, he, he has a great agenda across the board. It's, he's okay. not a single issue guy. No. Uh, he's a great voice for working families. There's wonderful things happening for working families, which I'm excited about. I am too. Uh, yeah. So it's it's great that I that things I would like to accomplish are kind of in the works. Um, I look forward to seeing if there are any opportunities, any you know not really holes but ways that we can flesh out some of those um, advancements well let's talk about that a little bit because uh, i think that relates to what kind of committees have you been put on i i am awaiting the final uh the final word okay um so the there's a couple slots available i came in almost at the same time another vacancy committee voted to fill joanne janal's seat Mm -hmm. and so that has been filled by kathy kipp and she came out of a school board, Poudre Valley School Board. So she's a ter- terrific, another great public education advocate and across the board, good Democrat. It'll be like the two of us getting mm-hmm. slotted <laughs> in. What I kind of know to be true is that I can bring a bill in front of any committee. So I'm not limited by my committee assignments of what I want to put forward in an agenda. I served on Greenwood Village City Council for two terms. So one of the slots is transportation and local affairs. I would love that. I actually really like advocating for mass transit and trying to reduce emissions and all kinds of um, issues around transportation. I like working with my local liaisons. I have a lot of friends left over uh, that are still serving in local institutions. If I can Um, ask you a quick question about that, though, with um, transportation and reducing carbon footprint and stuff like that, are you going to try to push forward on anything that's going to put more affordable housing near transportation hubs? Well, yeah. I mean, so transit-oriented development is the way it should go but the interesting thing that's kind of frustrating is that you have that conflicting with um developments and we've seen them all over and you probably could name them that are under parked yeah so yes it's we're not there yet in terms of infrastructure so we can't assume when we put in units um that the residents are not going to own a car or not going to want to be able to access a car especially Mm -hmm. colorado where you want to go to the mountains on the weekend so maybe you're lucky enough to be able to make it to work which would put you in a pretty small subset unfortunately Mm -hmm. of people who can make it to work on mass transit but still on the weekends you're going to want to have a car and so that creates sort of this um, frustration in the community which you it's everything from having to pay it's the reason you have to pay for parking at Cherry Creek Mall. Yeah. <laughs> which has everybody up in arms. Well, then think a little bit through about development. Well, didn't Denver pass uh, an ordinance that said any new buildings had to have appropriate parking for them right. now? And so, so they're doing um, something but at least. The, the problem, not to be overly critical of Denver, the problem in Denver is I, I feel, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that the developers have really been powerful. <laughs> 
in there. Yeah. No, I don't <laughs> um, think you're alone at all. And all. <laughs> <laughs> affordable housing is thorny issue that the chamber is dedicated. The, the Democrats in the House really want to do something about this. We put in affordable housing designations, and you do the math. <laughs> they're really hard. They are not affordable. No, they're not. Well, uh, that was an issue they had in Denver, wasn't it? With uh, yes. some people were hiking rates up on them when they weren't supposed to. Right, and, and then I mean, there's an underground re re rental market. Lack of um, oversight. Yes. Yeah. So, Aurora, Aurora's even worse. They they're knocking down uh, trailer homes to build RTD stops. Which right. It's really concerning mm. to me. And you know, it cascades with a whole bunch of other things that. Mm. You know, there's a sort of abusive internship corporatism that that a lot of starter jobs either pay very minimally or don't pay at mm-hmm. all. Um, and then there's student loans. And, oh, yeah. um, oh, I don't know. That um, so yeah. there's a lot of folk, a lot of folks who are millennials who are really haven't seen in- incomes have been stagnant. Uh, student loans are outrageous, and now housing in Denver. I mean, I I feel like. Denver is really on the cusp of losing its recognizableness. I I couldn't agree more, honestly. I mean, at the point where younger people might find better opportunities elsewhere where they can afford to live more and deciding to take their talents elsewhere. And I mean, the education gap here in the city is crazy, too, in the sense that most of the educated people that work here weren't necessarily educated here. Right. Like a lot of the people who are local that grow up here in the school system don't get the same opportunities as a lot of other people and lose out on the jobs that are higher That's income perfectly jobs said. Here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, the drive till you qualify culture yeah. is um, so reliant on single occupancy vehicles. So mm-hmm. it's, it's an outmoded way of uh, increasing affordability. Yep. And it's terrible for our planet. So, yeah. <laughs> Until we all start so, driving electric vehicles. Uh, it's or incumbent like upon, you know, Denver isn't the only entity in this mix, right? No. So, Englewood um, has done some great things. Um, Sheridan has as well. Um, Sheridan just has a lot of challenges. It's a food yeah. desert, it doesn't have a lot of retail tax revenue. But Greenwood Village had sort of a sad series of events around a, a hotel occupancy that was being used by families and but even Greenwood Village understands the need for a balance of not only single family and apartment but affordable apartments but they have to be close to transportation so exactly and the transportation in the city while it's still not bad is not really great it's not mature yet yeah. <laughs> it's not like a lot of other major metropolitan areas that are able to get you just about anywhere you need to be right yeah. right so we can do we can do buses i mean we can mm-hmm. do better we can do buses that run on natural gas there are there are opportunities it doesn't always have to be light rail but the great thing about light rail is that you add cars when capacity when you reach capacity, you add another car. Yep. Um, so you 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 fill a bus and the bus is full. <laughs> <laughs> These are big deep thoughts from right. Representative Froelich. <laughs> well, and I think we can get into a bunch more of these in a minute when we talk about Jared Polis's State of the State address. But uh, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, I wanted to talk about reorg a little bit, not necessarily like the races themselves, but like just sort of the process and how it works. 
and how uh, we pick our new leaders in the party sense. Um, do you know much about that? Are you able to explain yes, the process? Yes, yes, uh, yes. I mean, I know I've been through it once, but I, yes. I wouldn't imagine I'm able to speak on it as well as some people. So Yeah, and I'll just actually circle back a little bit to vacancy committees because there is an interesting factor in that. So the Democrats do this pretty broad vacancy committees. We've had a series of Republican elections. We just had one to fill Baumgartner's seat that's been filled by Rep. Rankin. He's in on a six-to-four vote. 10 total votes for a Senate race. And his wow. wife is hoping to take his seat in the House. That will be six votes. Wow. wow. So we say our vacancy <laughs> committees are small retail politics. Theirs are uh, this incredibly like interesting, politics, like, really, yeah. really small. Um, so every two years, the county parties uh, reorganize, which shorten to reorg. So they hold a reorg. And then the state party as well reorganizes and reelects its officers. So we vote for a new chair, vice chair, secretary, and treasurer for every one of our districts. So we do that for the state as a whole, and then we do it for the county, and then we do it for every district. So we will do it for Senate district, House district, commissioner district, judicial district, congressional district, and some of those are multi-county, so they get very yeah. complicated. Mm -hmm. CD6 you know, is multi-county. Mm -hmm. Judicial District 18 is multi-county. The people who get to vote for each of those officers are the, big surprise, precinct committee people. <laughs> so the precinct committee people primarily, uh, almost exclusively, are elected at caucus. Mm -hmm. The caucus system is a whole nother podcast <laughs> yeah. no it's for sure it uh, which it, but it does bring power to the absolutely grassroots level it tends to be the most devoted people to the party and yeah. being devoted to a party is an out outdated mode a lot of people think of political engagement and so our precinct committee people do skew older than our po voting population so there's a lot of discussion about that generational gap. And there's also discussion about caucuses are held on a Tuesday night. So it's not particularly family friendly. Them, yeah. It's not, it's terribly not friendly for disabled folks. Really difficult for disabled folks to participate in caucus. Mm -hmm. I mean, the schools where they're held are ADA compliant, mm -hmm. but getting from room to room or getting to the room where your vote might be held or all of those things, um, minus getting to the event in, in and of itself are, are kind of barriers to participation. So there's some particular barriers to participation in caucus. Mm -hmm. Then you are empowered to vote at the reorganization. So the reorganization will begin with a vote for county party chair. That'll be first off the bat. And when that county party chair is elected, that chair takes over the meeting then. And, and just the runs it from... chair is done. Okay. Uh, the yeah. gavel <laughs> is passed. And we vote on other party business. I think we, you know, things like passing a budget or um, other or the other officers, the vice chair, secretary, all of those elections would then be held. Then while those, sometimes while those are being counted, I'm not exactly sure, but then we break out into these subdivisions and vote for these, again, these four officers over and over again. And I think that's where you're talking about where you go like room to room. Right. So, so I remember know, that too, just like running back and yes, forth. And, yes. Yeah. So the Senate will break, all the Senate districts will break out and go to different mm -hmm. parts of 
you know, one might be in the cafeteria, one might be in the gym. They're usually held in school, so that's why I'm using yeah. that. Um, and then after they convene, then the House districts convene, and then the commissioner districts will convene. Okay. Those positions can be particularly active. They can be active in looking for candidates. They can be active in raising – some of them are active in raising money. Some of them are active in support of the elected official in that capacity um, and some of them aren't particularly active mm. it can kind of be at the discretion of either the leadership in terms of the chair and vice chair or at the elected officials uh, level but in our party the house district is the organizing unit of our county party so okay. a senate district tends to be less active and a so house district I I more that. active yeah okay and then Denver has so many Democrats that they break their House <laughs> districts yeah. up into two. I, yeah, because when I lived in uh, House District 9, it was A and B. A and B, yeah. right. And I they'll elect that. officers, I think, for both A and yep. B, right? And yep. then sometimes they don't even meet at the same time. Well, and it's interesting, too, because House District 9 was a multi-county uh, right. one, like you're talking about. So, like, I think B was in Arapahoe and A was in Denver. What county is HD3 in? HD3 is wholly within Arapahoe County. Wholly within Arapahoe? Yes. Okay. So oh. you would only deal with the Rappo County stuff. In fact, right? nine is our only house district. No, that's not true. Fifty something is goes out oh, into Albert. Albert yes. County, yeah. Um, but a nine is our only one that has part of Denver anymore. House okay. District three used to be completely within Denver, yeah. then it grabbed a little bit of Cherry Hills, and then it just all the way out. It came all the way down okay. below the border. Well, thank you for the very informative. Uh, <laughs> Instructions on reorg. Now we all know, yeah. I mean, and the, you know, sometimes the county officers' elections are uh, uncontested, and everybody just sort of says, "Thank you for doing this." <laughs> it's a, it's a really hard. It's job. happened. Yeah, and, uh, wants and to sometimes step up later, they yeah. are really contested and mean and mean. Yeah, yeah. which isn't my favorite thing to have happen <laughs> well and it's funny uh i want to go back to you mentioned that it's starting to skew older like the generation's a little older that's actually still involved i mean rapo county is a third democrat third republican and third independent and it's just most young people just being independent now they don't really want labels or be and, affiliated and i don't like them folks being called independent because you're not really dependent you're independent How's so it? we i try and yeah. I, it's like choice and anti-choice <laughs> but, um, i i try and make sure people say unaffiliated because mm -hmm. what really happens is you are dependent less so now that you can vote in a primary yeah. as an unaffiliated voter but you are dependent on the party to put up candidates and to make these decisions of yeah. of uh who runs so i think it's better to have a say in the decision making agree. That's why I made my decision to join the But Democratic I also, Party. you know, I have a friend who's a pastor, and she was saying it's the same discussion we have uh, that pastors have about church. They want young people to come to church. They want a more diverse church population. Please come and uh, observe the same rituals that we have been doing the exact same for, <laughs> you know, exactly, we yes. sing the same hymns and we do everything in the same order and um, we behave in the exact same manner. And so I've been that new person who said, why don't we do this? And why don't we do that? And heard, well, we tried that once in 1975 and it was awful. So I've been that person too. And I understand that frustration. It's always difficult to have sort of uh, the folks that are like, no, we've always done it this way. Some of that I have great sympathy for because some of that is 
is embedded in the rules and regulations. And yeah. if we don't do things properly at an assembly or in a nominating situation, that person doesn't actually get on the ballot. No. And yeah. so that person in the corner that's putting their hand up and saying, I'm sorry, but you didn't do it according point to order. We have to go back, yeah. point of order. We have to vote this way. Um, everybody groans because they prolong the procedure. We need to have great sympathy, actually, for those folks <laughs> right? because uh, They're putting their that's hand on the chopping block to make sure it's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to move into the state of the state address. Uh, Polis had five major topics that I saw that I wanted to talk about. They range from health care costs, reduction of health care costs, full-day kindergarten, parental leave, renewable energy, and tax reform. So I kind of just want to walk through them, and we can go relatively quick. But uh, health care costs, I thought it was funny. He called it the Office of Reducing the Cost of Healthcare, or something like that. Uh, I like how he's very straightforward and simple with these names. But um, have you heard about like, any of his plans? I mean, I know he said something about importing drugs from Canada and stuff like that. How are we moving forward on any bills or anything like that? I think, um, first of all, what's exciting about many exciting things about Governor Polis and the agenda that he's outlined, and one of them is that he has expressly said that he will be involved with the legislature. So we've had two previous governors who really didn't travel up to the second floor, who remained on the first floor, which is sort of <laughs> Very a metaphor true. for engagement yeah. <laughs> with the legislature. Um, Governor Polis has said he wants to be uh, in on what happens on the second floor. So that's an exciting opportunity, I think, to have him set the agenda and then help us implement it. I think we have a great asset in the lieutenant governor, Diane Primavera, on health care. It's been her life's passion. So she's a health care advocate or something. And like she ha- she is a cancer survivor who really mm-hmm. has over-survived her, her <laughs> diagnosis. And um, awesome. she's been a champion on this regard for really really long time decades so some of the things that in in the nitty-gritty of how do you make healthcare more affordable we've started to see and we will continue to see it's things like fee transparency so you should be able to know what a hip replacement costs in this hospital, that hospital, and this hospital, and why it costs that Didn't much. Didn't Denver just do something? And so yeah. we, uh, Daniel Kagan passed some legislation like that. We will continue. They've been doing it to specific actual operations. Yeah. So we'll see expansion of that. So more and more transparency, uh, cost transparency, I think, is a huge thing. Do you think that might help to reducing costs? I think it. I mean, how could it not? Right? Yeah. When you I see mean, the competition in front of you. Well, my. As someone who has a hip I mean, replacement, yeah. <laughs> she, she does. Yeah, yeah. Um, my concern is that will hospitals start to cut corners in order to reduce those costs? Yeah, but to I mean, make you more attractive. I I don't know. I mean, or everything's kind of hyperinflated already, isn't it? I, I no think idea. that the point of it is to point out the crazy high cost of certain aspects of medical yeah. care. Oh yeah. Um. So I think that sort of thing, as you. I'm sure you looked at your bill and oh, yeah. you see what <laughs> insurance pays and then what the cost would be if you didn't have insurance and all these factors that uh, I think I think increased transparency helps. I don't know you know how much or to what degree, but it, I think it's a step in the right direction. Same with prescription drug costs, transparency, and maybe just the idea of importing from canada puts people on notice mm. um, well i was asking her earlier too is like we're going to import drugs from canada and these are the same drugs that we can get here just more expensive it's why can we not we buy them here right for the so same that's price? i you know so even if that bill only 
creates that discussion. Yeah. Doesn't that, I, I mean, I think it moves the ball down the field. I mean, if we get the DOC in on this um, Senate Bill 5, Harvoni, I, th- I think it's 80% of people who are in the late stages of Hep C and the prison system. Um, it's like $1,400 for Harvoni, and we can get it from Canada for, I believe, 100 So that would be a huge well, savings. That's immense. Like, wh- right. And why, why is it impossible to purchase it in this country for less? Right. Well, yeah, I, mean, I mean, I guess that's the whole that, thing we're yeah, addressing here. That's yeah, that's a big question. You know, <laughs> right, like, right. What, and your negotiated are, rate under insurance can is massively different from what you would pay if you just walked up to the pharmacy. But yeah. your need for the for the drug is no different, right? Mm-hmm. No. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if you know folks that, that have to take insulin, but the cost of insulin yeah. is through the roof. And so um, price gouging is a part of it. Um, mm-hmm. Transparency is a part of it. Um, affordable alternatives is a part of it. I think we are going to pursue I think we're going to pursue a public option on yeah. health care, uh, on Polis, health insurance. Like Polis had mentioned, part of his right. platform was the universal health yeah, care. Yeah, so that that creates more competitiveness in the, in the marketplace. I think that's great. The more people that are insured, the better. And oh, I think I think that that has there's been an increased awareness around that that it saves us all money. Absolutely, that'd be great. Um, I think there are some options in the prison system, and and those sorts of things. Incarcerated people are really suffering in terms of health care, and so there's um, opportunities to provide better care, but also to do pilot programs like. Uh, some of what you were mentioning so we'll see how that actually shakes out but i think there's a willingness to work on it well speaking of healthcare, and it's kind of going to help us go into our third topic in a minute but uh parental leave was another topic that polis had brought up and it's the idea that state employees will now have more leeway for leave for family medical issues and stuff like that i know that there's already the family medical leave act on the federal level but do you know what kind of things he's wanting to expand here with that we don't really have that in Colorado. No. We don't have okay. we don't have um, maternity leave. Uh, we oh. don't have. Okay. I mean, and the United States in general just just lags behind other developed nations in this category. Really do. Um, <laughs> it's just it. I I think what we really have to realize is that compassionate workplace policies. It's not giving freebies. It makes your workers more loyal, more apt to stay around, and more productive when they're not stressed over caring for an elderly parent or caring for a newborn when you can go back to work when you're ready to go back to work and when your child is perhaps better positioned to be uh, looked after by someone else and is it maybe you know, like we have the statistics to prove this stuff yeah. it is it, you know it's tough because it it's dollars and cents and people yeah. feel like it's an economic burden but i think we can make the case that it actually makes for a better workplace and more productivity mm-hmm. and well, Republicans have definitely said it would be more of a burden, but at the same time, I think the way you're thinking of, if it seems like your business or the work place you work cares about you, you're going to care about them a little bit more too. So, and I almost every working mom knows what it's like to use your sick days to care for your kids instead of you know you you yourself can never get sick. Yeah, because all your sick days go to taking care of. I've I've been taking care of my. So it looks like you got three kids, right? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I, and I have an elderly parent that I'm, 
I'm not in charge of his care. I just am the person that cares the most about him. And the, yeah. and just it's a tremendous strain on working folks. And it's horrible to have to make those choices mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Parental leave is parental leave. It's not maternity leave. And right. it's, it, it includes yeah. paternity leave. So um, there's lots of ways in which society is changing and evolving. And uh, well, yeah, this is just reflective leave. of that. Yeah, paternity leave is a newer one that has been coming up more lately too. Yes, yeah. I think You're that's one correct. of the reasons our generation hasn't had started families as early is because we don't. <laughs> well, I mean, besides, besides the economic issues that we spoke about earlier, I mean, yeah. there's this too. Like, we don't think we have the time or anything as well for all that, or the, oh. even the health insurance yeah. to. Yeah. In my primary campaign, you know, one of the criticisms was that I left the state. Job mobility is so prevalent now, and mm-hmm. you know my husband got a job, a dream job in California, and that was hard to pick up and go. Uh, we were talking about that today. That sort of leads us into our next area that he was talking about, which is full day kindergarten as well, because I know that would help a lot of working parents as well. The idea that your kid's going to be in kindergarten all day, and then even starting more early education programs as well. I mean, I feel like that would have a huge help to the economic income of people and, like, the ability to do their jobs and stuff. It's an investment in our community when we invest in our children. All-day kindergarten has has been sort of the white whale that we've been chasing for many, many sessions now. Andy, Senator Andy Kerr just tried over and over and over again to get full-day kindergarten. It's attached to a fiscal note, so it has fiscal implications. Governor Polis has said it will be optional, mm-hmm. so there are some people who think that uh, but we basically don't consider a five-year-old, you're not required to go to school until you're seven. Oh, wow. So prior to, prior to that, a five-year-old is considered a .58 of a student. And so they don't get the per pupil funding. Didn't we so, do this with people? With right, before? right. Like, so that's what I like said. That's a good I, way to go. We don't have a good history with no. uh, <laughs> fractions, uh, with designating well. fractions for people. So I think they're gonna find. I, they're gonna find the money to do it. Well, and um, you say they're gonna find the money, and I, I know Polis has said that almost verbatim. But I mean, with Tabor and everything like that, how do you work to? Well, find the question that? is, can you can you just designate? a person who opts into full-day kindergarten as a full student. And we are refunding millions and millions and millions of dollars under Tabor to the taxpayers. So Mm -hmm. if if we have a increased awareness in society that five-year-olds are perfectly capable of attending school all day, and we didn't used to think that, then can we, through semantics, find a way to designate them a full pupil? Okay. I guess is sort of one so of the, it's the ways idea of can we, can we believe that these children are full people are capable, fully yeah. fully and Cap- therefore should have a full ed- per pupil student fee yeah okay assigned to them okay that's I mean it's more complicated than that yeah <laughs> but <laughs> the last part about the education stuff I'd like to delve into a little bit I don't know how much you know about it or whatever um, is sort of the idea of uh, charter schools and the public school system and stuff like that. I know they've been taking a lot of funds from normal neighborhood schools and stuff. How would charter schools maybe step in to facilitate this, or should they? Like, what 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 do you think? I am not opposed to charter schools in principle, but I think the whole point of a charter school is to meet an unmet need. Mm-hmm. So if in this all-day kindergarten there develops unmet need in terms of facilities or curriculum, there's a potential for a charter to form to meet that need mm-hmm. for all-day kindergarten in a community. There, We've had just 
far too many charters that were charters for charter's sake that didn't mm-hmm. fulfill an unmet need in the community. We also have overrun, over overextended, overridden, overridden okay. <laughs> local school boards' decisions on charters at yes. the state level uh, over and over again. So that's mm-hmm. problematic. The challenge with charters is is it comes from a couple places. One is that they don't have to take all comers. So your community school takes every kid that comes through their door, special Mm -hmm. needs or not, IEP or not, behavioral issues, whatever it is, our community schools uh, step up and educate all children. Um, And I personally believe they they do it under less and less money every year and they do yes. it uh, absolutely uh, in, they i but, don't but buy ar- into public education's failing our community no drumbeat but, but some would argue that those charter schools are taking away the funding for some of those traditional well schools it and, isn't that yeah, i mean it, and if they're not going to the serve thing everybody is that, yes and yeah. so they receive the same per pupil funding from our tax dollars but aren't required to educate all they can be engage in union, what I consider to be union busting. Mm-hmm. They are exempt from providing certain services that uh, other community schools have to provide. So they get off the hook in terms of their expenses, mm-hmm. and, and that helps them have more income and longer school days and things like that. So sometimes they get better test results as a result. Is there anything you can do from the legislature to maybe make it to where they can't circumvent those things anymore Uh, i mean i think the charters we have are the charters we have and we probably should support them to do the best that they can to serve their students in the best way possible and maybe expand the services that they uh, provide those students Uh, we should certainly hold them accountable in terms of the whole point is that they're supposed to be meeting an unmet need and they're also supposed to be more effective sometimes so if you don't if you don't see test scores going up under that situation when they have all these exemptions, yeah. then uh, they ought to be held accountable. But um, the NAACP has come out against further further charters. <laughs> um, so I think we've seen, unfortunately, increased segregation in Denver public schools as a result of both school choice and charters. Mm-hmm. And some, some of that is an unintended consequence. And um, How do you think that feeds, like, the achievement gap and stuff like that? I, I mean, it's everything, it's everything. right? everything, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should ask. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, the test scores of students overwhelmingly reflect the socioeconomic background of the parents. Uh, yeah. We can do things to change that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know what those things are. And the amelioration of poverty and the addition of nutrition and medical services and all sorts of things that can inter intercede and change those outcomes. Um, sometimes it's a different style of learning, and sometimes it's a charter school that can implement a different outlook and a different style of pedagogy. But in a state that's starved by Tabor, it's yeah. it's a challenge. Yeah. But I think we're up to the challenge. I think we're going to make some some great changes. Speaking of challenges, I kind of want to move to the, the next one now, is uh, renewable energy. Polis has set up the challenge to be 100% renewable in Colorado by 2040. What steps do you see the legislature possibly taking? There's going to be a whole host of things that dovetail with the governor's renewable energy and sustainability initiatives. Um, They're already in the works, um, reduction of emissions. 
we want more of the fleet to be either hybrid or electric, but that means charging stations and mm-hmm. fun things like that. We well, want more mass I, transit. The interesting thing I think about with renewable energy, too, is the idea that, you know, if we have electric cars and stuff like that, we have to charge them. Where does that energy come from? Right. You know, is it coming from solar, wind, right. stuff like so, that, or is it coming um, from coal? Or Excel actually has a pretty ab- ambitious agenda. Um, as well. I think the government mentioned that too, yeah. Yes, so they are a good partner in this, um, and we are a sunny state, we're a windy state, so we have the potential. Um, it's, it's critical that as we phase out coal, that we also have a understanding that that is phasing out a subset of jobs and transportation issues and people's livelihoods. So that will happen but there's no reason it can't happen without sort of compassion and retraining and an acknowledgement that folks provided energy for us (laughs) and we all drive cars and we all it's a lot of people that worked hard to provide like on a light switch right but we i i think we'll i think we'll make it i think these i think it's important to set the goal but i also think that the goals are attainable one more question what do you think in your um stay at the legislature will be your biggest challenge it doesn't have to be political but it it's funny saying that now too because uh it's all blue so it seems right. like there's gonna be a lot that might go it, your way yeah, but it may not though exactly right yeah. right right when i was an outsider and we had the blue wave um, <laughs> i was really saying boy i hope they're not timid you know, we all, we've had the majority a couple times. We've had this situation where we've had this trifecta, and uh, now that I'm in, now that I'm in, I understand the timidity uh, because some of these are tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, we we have been aggressive on some issues, and we had senators recalled over it. And yes, um, and not only that, but um, the women who who proposed gun safety legislation during that session when we but that resulted yeah. in recalling um, two of our senators and the resignation of a third um, got really scary threats and um, the really big black book of hate did in 2013 exactly so is that maybe why so like- maybe it, maybe it's being brave and willing to that'll pr- probably be the biggest challenge because um you don't want to be motivated by re-election. I mean, that's just... Especially in the middle uh, of your term, um, and, right? and, and I think that that's so common, right? That's not why I'm there. I'm not there to get re-elected. I'm there to advance up what I passionately believe in, which is a progressive agenda. So Can hopefully I I appreciate hearing that? Being, being not afraid to plant the flag under your desk. <laughs> <laughs> well, because that's the issue is we've spoken to a few people on here and off of here as well. And it seems a lot of them, while they're ready to move forward with these progressive ideas, are being somewhat timid in the sense of, you know, they don't want to push too far or they don't want to, like, rub people the wrong way. It, it's nice to hear that, you know, like, there are some reservations because, you know, there were recalls before for stuff that was done or people may be worrying about re-election. But it's nice to hear you say that I'm there to do the job I was appointed to do. I'm going to do it. And uh, that's it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> you, know, you don't think so? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, I, but but I also don't think that that's a particularly brave thing to say. I really rare. do think that's that people thing. respond to authenticity. Yeah, and um, and authentically 
person who holds a view different from yours is um is a known entity yeah it's waffling and gray that is really difficult to work with and when you don't know you don't know where someone stands then you don't even really have a negotiating there's nowhere to start there's nowhere to start yeah yeah so that's why I hope anyway. <laughs> we will see. I like it. Um, and so last but not least, uh, the tax reform. We can go over it real quickly. Polis said that he wants to try to lower income taxes on families and small businesses to help offset some of Trump's tax changes lately. There's one thing that I noticed really that I didn't know before is Colorado has a flat tax of 4.63%. I didn't realize we had a flat tax here. Flat tax here. I thought we had a progressive system maybe or no? Yeah. I don't know. I'm... I don't know anyway. Yeah, I'm not really... No worries. Back books for that. But uh, yeah, I I need to I need to learn more about that. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's a great idea because the Trump tax cut has been disastrous, devastating to families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which isn't great. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, awesome. Well, it's interesting, you know, just for your podcast and and for our discussions. You know, this idea that Colorado really has this opportunity to be the beacon of the Rocky Mountain West and we can preserve and protect certain rights. We can preserve and protect our land and water and air. And we are doing all those things. We are still in the middle of the country. And so there's an interesting dynamic there between the national scene and what can we do to, to keep that to keep Colorado, Colorado. I think I referred to some people as the uh, the oasis in the desert. Right. Yeah. Right. Tremendous opportunity for us. Mm. But we still will. I mean, we have how how many federal workers are in Colorado? Oh. I mean, with the national parks and everything. Yeah. There's so I mean, many. I, the, I mean, they put out a. We we can check it later, and you can put it in yeah. your thing. But um, it's devastating. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. And. Hope, the only thing I hope is that people realize what the federal government actually does. <laughs> they do a lot, um, and we need to help them. Well, and that's another thing, too, is people are talking about with all of them being furloughed and, over, and TSA and a lot of people not getting paychecks. Uh, there's some businesses and some people that are stepping up to help, but, like, what is the state actually doing to step up right. and help those people? Right. And, and we haven't really gotten a straight and, answer and, for anybody. And we don't have the imprimatur, and we don't have the money. Yeah. Nope. So and that seems to be the answer to, we keep yeah, coming back to. Yeah. We'll be stepping too far out of our lane. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I mean, I, I feel two ways about volunteer organizations cleaning up natu- national parks and those sorts of things. I mean, I don't want those treasures to be uh, permanently damaged, but I also want people to see this is what it read, looks like when they're unattended. Well, absolutely. I read an article the other day about somebody cutting down a Joshua tree in some right. national park or something. I was like, that's terrible. Like, right. There's garbage piling up. There's that's the big part, museums yeah. are closed. Uh, it's awful. I'm yeah. sorry, but anyway, that's a hope for an yeah. other topic. All right, so that's pretty much everything we got here. Uh, thank you Thanks. so much for joining us. We really Thanks appreciate for it. Having me. We usually wrap up with a final thought. So if there's anything that you want to say to the viewers or listeners, you know, something you want to get off your chest, been thinking about it lately or anything like that, feel free. I'm just very, very excited about the opportunities at the Colorado Legislature and in Colorado and as, as a whole. I think we're going to do great things. For my final thought, did it take the blue wave for the Republicans to find their balls? Apparently, St- Congressman Stephen King uh, has been asked to find another line of work after almost 20 years in Congress and his incredibly racist remarks. 
I I don't know what I'm I'm much more bothered by his racist remarks or that it took them so long to say stop. Yeah, and that's a great point, Katya. For for my final thought, I'd like to look at the new attorney general that's being appointed, William Barr. Uh, he said that he won't in, he won't interfere with Trump's investigation or the investigation of Trump by the with the uh, Justice Department or the FBI or anything like that, which I think is encouraging. But at the same time, he's also said that you know political oversight from the executive branch for the attorney general is something that you know is okay and. But uh, I hope that he does a good job, and we'll see how he does. I don't know.